Gate at just before Coil de Tierra at Toro Creek Road. Highway 101, heavy through Prunedale. That's in both directions. I see multiple accidents just south of town. 156, heavy in both directions. You'll need to take Blackie Road. Looks like heavy stuff coming in and out of Castroville in all directions, including Highway 183 to Castroville. 101 northbound heavy uh, again up the road there, not far up the road. 156 all the way to the 25 connector. That's like a six-mile stretch of a parking lot right now, northbound. 152 heavy from Old Gilroy uh, to Bloomfield and in the other direction from San Felipe to almost Old Gilroy. 101 South, heavy through Morgan Hill. Mucho Trafico right now. Just killing. 17 Southbound, still heavy through Los Gatos. With an accident just north of town. Highway 9 is clear. 17 Northbound, all clear. And that wraps it up for your traffic report. It looks like uh, high near 68 in Santa Cruz today. 70s to 80s inland tomorrow. About the same patchy fog overnight and high winds as well with winds up to 25 miles per hour. Just past 2.06, and we are streaming live on Facebook Live at the KSEO Santa Cruz Facebook page. It's time for the Planet Watch Radio Show with your hosts, Joe Jordan and Rachel Goodman. KSEO. Welcome to Planet Watch, Sunday, August 6th, 2017. I'm Joe Jordan, without our co-host Rachel Goodman, but in her place working the controls today is Cabrillo College intern Caroline King. We also have two other interns from our local community college, Cabrillo. One is Cade Pustelnik, and one is Tommy Martin. Later in the show, hopefully... Uh, if uh, he makes an appearance, we have a, an illustrious guest, Chris Bly, B-L-E-Y, who has founded at least two amazing companies. One is called Rope Partner, a bunch of rock climbing folks who uh, use their skills to inspect and maintain wind turbines, the big wind turbines all over the world in a hugely growing industry, as well as all kinds of interesting uh, hard-to-reach structures and locations up in the sky. And another company called Inspect Tools, which uses aerial devices, otherwise known as drones, to inspect large solar arrays and uh, wind farms, as well as regular old agricultural farms. And uh, we're going to talk about all those issues, as well as the kind of exciting, fascinating technology involved. But uh, for right now, we got our usual news and commentary roundup having to do with environment and planet. So we're going to start off with a story that kind of harkens back to an earlier show where we had the delightful uh, UCSC researcher Marcella Selly Santos telling us about bees and their human companions and our evolving ecology of the human bee community. And... Um, well, uh, Kate has a story about that's actually some good news for a change about bees, so let us have it there, Kate. Thank you, Joe. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has reported that farmed bees in the United States has increased by about 3% as of April 2017 in comparison to April 2016. In addition, the number of beehives have, that have fallen victim to colony collapse disorder has decreased by 27% in both quarters of 2017, as opposed to the same time period in 2016. Colony collapse disorder is a phenomenon where worker bees abandon their hive and leave immature bees, nurse bees, and the queen bee along with their food source behind. Though researchers and beekeepers have yet to find the single major cause of this tragedy, some factors that have been discovered for why this happens are pesticides, insecticides, fungi, and the disruption of beehives through relocation. 
From the April to June 2017 time frame, 13% of colonies were affected by pesticides, and the Environmental Protection Agency is currently considering a ban on insecticides that contain neonicotinoids. On top of colony collapse disorder, varroa mites have also threatened the bee population as these parasites have affected 42% of commercial hives from April to June of 2017. This small percentage increase is a step in the right direction as the future of fruits, vegetables, and nuts depend on bees' existence. Yeah. Yeah, and since we depend on those foods, <laughs> we depend on bees' existence. So, uh, yeah, that's good news, and let's hope it's not just a little random blip a little uptick but that we're actually kind of figuring out how to protect and, and uh you know enhance the chances of survival and thrival of our bee populations so thanks for that one Cade and then let's see uh, we have more well I thought maybe we had another yeah we, yeah we do have another good news item but first let's do a bad news item from uh, Tommy Martin <laughs> Sorry if I threw you for a loop there. <laughs> yeah, some not good, some not so good news coming from Europe this week. A blistering heat wave swept across parts of Europe last week, causing ten countries to issue red alerts, with temperatures breaking records in Croatia, reaching 107 degrees Fahrenheit. Romania and Italy both reported deaths due to extreme heat, as hospital admissions rose across the continent and wildfires spread across Italy and Albania. The hot and dry weather in Italy and Serbia has increased fears of water shortage and crop yields are expected to decrease dramatically. Uh, Italy is experiencing its worst drought in 60 years, forcing wine growers to pick grapes weeks early and some water fountains to be shut off in Rome. This Friday, during this historic heat wave, researchers warned that two-thirds of the European population could be affected by weather-related disasters, such as heat waves, droughts, wildfires, and floods by the end of the century. This research suggests deaths from these disasters could increase 50-fold by 2100, reaching 150,000 per year, according to the study published in the Lancet Planetary Health Journal. <laughs> yeah, well, so, let's see, Tommy, the geographic scope of your report there, um, this just in, this guy just in, uh, Chris Bly, who we introduced a second ago, he, he has made it. And as I recall, Jason was talking about a lot of bad traffic out there. Maybe Chris can tell us some stories from that. But uh, your, your story there, Tommy, was uh, m mostly focused on Europe. Is that right? Yeah, it's mostly Southern and Eastern Europe. Because, I mean, you know, we in this country are, are going to be facing similar kinds of things. And the whole fires issue, we're going to talk later. In fact, our co-host Rachel is going to be calling in from somewhere up north imminently with news from the big fires in British Columbia and their effects on wherever she is. And it just today, for the first time, dawned on me that, geez, all those people going up to see the eclipse fires could in a number of ways impact all of our plans so anyway more stay tuned and thanks for that story now for some good news again from um, from caroline king who's also uh, running the boards for us yeah um a research team from carnegie mellon university led by terence j collins has developed a fast and cheap approach that removes bisphenol a commonly known as bpa from water BPA is a dangerous chemical used in the manufacturing of many plastics and is found in water sources around the world. BPA mimics the hormone estrogen and can affect the body's endocrine system. Studies in fish, mammals, and human cells have shown that BPA adversely affects brain and nervous system development, growth and metabolism, as well as the reproductive system. Currently, more than 15 billion pounds of BPA is produced annually, and BPA-contaminated water, such as industrial waste or landfill runoff, may or may not be treated before it's released back into the environment. The research team has developed a system to effectively decontaminate water sources using small molecules that mimic oxidizing systems called TAML activators. When combined with the chemical, or sorry, with, when combined with hydrogen peroxide at a neutral pH level, these catalysts break down the harmful chemical at a rate of 99% reduction within 30 minutes. 
TAML treatment at this pH level causes BPA to assemble into larger units called oligomers, which clump together and precipitate out of the water. According to Collins, the oligomers could be filtered and disposed of in a BPA water treatment facility. Most importantly, extensive studies by Collins and his team found that the oligomers themselves are not harmful. The nature of the bonds that stick the BPA molecules together doesn't allow the oligomers to revert back to BPA. BPA contamination and cleanup present a significant challenge, but this simple procedure has the potential to reduce BPA exposure worldwide. Okay, so I have a question for you. I mean, the big thing is, okay, all these plastic water bottles that are just everywhere, uh, a lot of people drink out of those. And, you know, you hear, well, you better not either let the stuff get too cold and freeze or get too hot, like in your car, because all those plastics are going to come out of those bottles into the water. So they've found a way to remove this stuff from water, but can you do that in those plastic bottles that have somehow already leached the stuff into the water that you're about to drink? I, I guess that's not what your story's about. But. Yeah, I think BPA just is produced as a byproduct when they're making those plastics in the first place. But it would be yeah. cool if they could make BPA-free plastic in the first place. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, uh, by the way, just an offshoot here, but appropriate to what we're going to talk about later, uh, BPA, an acronym, you know. For me, you know what that means? Uh, Bonneville, Bonneville Power Authority, the great big Pacific Northwest uh, source of electricity, which uh, a lot of it comes from dams and things. So, hey, there, there's water. More, more about water for you. Uh, well, thanks for that story, Carolyn. And uh, so that's sort of good news that they at least at least somewhere in the water cycle of, of for human consumption they've figured out how to clean it up uh, so then the question the rest a lot of the rest is economics so um well let's see we uh uh i have an item a quick little item and then i'm hoping that rachel is going to call in we were expecting her to call about 2:15 our time oh she already has it she's on oh good hey uh, let's see. Okay, so this is right. I didn't see the little blue and red light flashing, but I guess Jason, our engineer, picked it up on a different phone. So is Rachel there? Hi. Can you hear me? Hey, good, good. <laughs> Loud and clear. Hey. I was curious, Rachel, if how you knew you were going to be in an area that would have good, <laughs> assuming you're calling from your cell phone, do you have good, I guess you have good reception up there. Um, I do. It's a lot better than the air quality, I'll tell you that much. So um, I'm up in Marysville, Washington, which is north of Seattle. Way. I've been up in the area for the past four or five days. And the big story up here, and it's very directly related to climate change, is that the air quality in Seattle is equivalent to the air quality in Beijing. Oh, that's horrible. That's horrible. I once went to Beijing and came back here, had a cough for like six months <laughs> it finally I everybody's finally... coughing it's really bad i mean our eyes hurt my head hurts um all the people i know who normally feel good are feeling bad and their people are going indoors and putting on their air conditioners in hopes they can filter it out so a couple of interesting facts about the fires in bc um it's the worst in 60 dec 60 years um sorry it's the worst in <laughs> six decades and it's also the equivalent size, I think it's 2.1 million acres total, all these 123 fires. They're equal to 23 Seattle's in geographic area. So these fires, um, normally the, the smoke would be going into fairly unpopulated areas, although there are some areas it would affect in Canada. But um, because of a particular weather effect, it's blowing south. And it's gotten all the way down as far as Oregon. Yeah, this <laughs> this relates to what I was mentioning earlier. All those folks, including myself, who are planning to be in eastern Oregon for this total eclipse, uh, is that stuff mostly blowing east? So, you know, fleeing towards Wyoming or Idaho won't even help. You have to go all the way to Missouri to get out of this smoke? Or um... uh, No, it's, uh, the map, uh, the satellite map shows it going as far east as uh, Missoula, Montana, and as far south as, like, Portland and... Um, points east so it's not as far south as the uh whatever they're calling the band of totality but that you, that could change right now it's just a freak weather event that's happening where the the offshore winds turned off and the smoke ended up drifting south from british columbia we're about i don't know maybe 200 miles from the 
British Columbian border, <laughs> Canadian border right now. And so um, the sky, if you want to kind of imagine what it looks like, looks like a really foggy day in Santa Cruz or a day where it's super overcast. It, there's no blue at all. It's white gray. And the visibility, normally looking out from Seattle, you can see Rainier and Mount Baker. You cannot see them at all. And Earlier in the week, we were in a rural area um, out near Puget Sound, and you couldn't see across a football field. It was that bad. So um, this is the future, unfortunately, I'm afraid, because the climate is changing faster in the north. Last year, it was Siberian forests that were burning at a great rate. And, of course, you know, as we're getting these drying trends and droughts up here in the north, um, these fires are releasing even more carbon into the environment. So... It becomes this pretty bad cycle for people. But for human health, what I think is happening is people think of global warming as something that happens to other people. I will tell you that having been in this smoke for five days, it's happening to me and it's happening to millions of people in this metropolitan area where people feel sick and they're going to the hospital for asthma. So not a pretty picture. I think it'll clear in the short run, but you know, we're going to start seeing more health advisories when these big fire events happen. And, of course, in California, we're not at all alien to this. It's just um, people up here are not used to this. Yeah, the um, I saw a map this morning of, I don't know, maybe 100 separate fires all, all over British Columbia. And um, are you, let's see, you know, I, I know where Bellingham is, uh, kind of north of Seattle. W- where are you relative to that? What was the name of the town you're in again? It's in Marysville. We're about... Um, 20 miles south of Bellingham right now. Oh, okay. So, yeah, we're right near the border. Uh, and we were headed to the Cascades, which we're hoping to get a little relief from, but we're not sure. We may just end up going south to get out of this. Hmm. Yeah, it'd be interesting if you do get up, say, into Snoqualmie Pass there in the Cascades, if, uh, you know, if you are above it. Uh, can you tell me what color, if you look at the sun, <laughs> I, I suppose it's kind of reddish or yellowish orange. Uh, if, I mean, Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, if you look online, you can see pictures. It looks like a science fiction novel because there's big, giant red sun. Um, when it was coming up, it was bright red, and when it was going down last night, you couldn't even really see it. It was just a pink shape on the horizon. It didn't even look red anymore. So it's very bizarre. It's um, The light in the morning is red um, from the sun. You know, the shadows um, from all the smoke are making everything look kind of a pink tinge. Today, because it's the middle of the day, you know, the light is just very diffuse and kind of slight sunshine, but mostly gray. <laughs> well, you know, I can relate some of this to a... Um a natural phenomenon, which, however, was partly due to human uh, agricultural practices in Africa back in 1973, before most of the people in the studio here with me were born, uh, I was on a cruise ship in the uh, eastern Atlantic off the shore of Mauritania on the African continent watching a total eclipse of the sun, one of the longest ones ever. It was over seven minutes long. The day, the evening before, as I watched the sunset, the, the dust storms, the Sahel region, S-A-H-E-L, that was big back then, and dust storms were happening all over the Sahara and the Sahel region of Africa. And it blew stuff into the sky, which made the sun look kind of grayish-green at sunset. The next day, fortunately, during the eclipse, it was a little bit clearer, and but the sun still did look kind of grayish with a slight tint of green you know before the eclipse so it was sort of eclipsed a little bit by the by all the dust all the aerosols in the atmosphere but that was mostly from a kind of a natural uh phenomenon but it was credited to the way humans were doing agriculture uh kind of disturbing the soil and everything well so all these forest fires here well they're sort of a collective result of uh our whole human infrastructure of energy you know fossil fuels and greenhouse gases and uh you know certain natural things like lightning may have started the fires but they're more likely to get out of control when things are too damn dry so uh, yeah that's correct and they're also saying it's going to affect the price of timber not surprisingly that um, there's going to be less timber to harvest since it's on fire so you know it's going to have all kinds of repercussions a lot of the builders are put on hold for their orders because they can't get in and log, even if they could, you know, harvest, they can't get into these areas. They've shut them off because they don't want people to start more fires. So they've, you know, closed the backcountry in a lot of British Columbia. 
So it's an interesting story. It's unfolding, and um, you know, I can give you an update next week if you're on. And it's just nice to hear your voices. Carry on the good Likewise. work you're doing. I don't mean to um, scare people or bum them out. I'm just in the middle of a story, and it's an interesting one because I'm physically feeling it as I'm reporting it. This yeah. is always the case. Yeah, and, you know, just following on to that business about human-caused, natural-caused, another aspect of this eclipse craze, I mean, it's a good craze, okay, people trying to admire nature at its best and most spectacular and wonderful, but all those people up there in heavily forested lands, I mean, they're going to be trying to get out from under the trees to see the eclipse, but <laughs> they're going to be camping in national forests, and a whole lot of people increases the probability of a whole lot of fire, you know, that, that's fire-prone territory anyway. <laughs> you got your lightning and everything else. Now you got millions of people, half of whom don't know what the heck they're doing <laughs> as far as bumbling around in the wilderness. So, you know, I, I'm imagining scenarios where, hey, somebody starts a big fire and it's coming at everybody else and there are limited roads. Jeez, I'm, I'm, let's seeing, hope I'm, not. I'm uh, seeing a they're, horror they're movie. Nervous. <laughs> yeah, let's hope not. I think these are nature lovers, so they're going to be really careful and um, yeah. Apparently, they're expecting, because it's such a narrow band in Oregon, they're expecting one million people to come. And um, there's only four million people in Oregon, so it's going to increase <laughs> by a large percentage. And so they're they're saying it's a good um, practice run on their emergency services. They're going to be dispatching all of their first responders so um, that the commute doesn't get too jammed on that morning since it is a Monday um, it's not a very wide band, you know, of Oregon. It's only 100 miles wide, and they're thinking that million people will be filtering in. We're going to be in Corvallis, and that's right in the middle of it. So we'll let you know, uh, or you'll be there too. So we'll, we'll we'll both have a story to tell after how that works out. But yeah. I appreciate you having me on. I'll let you get back to Chris Pillai because it sounds like he has a lot to say that's positive about wind energy, which I'm looking forward to hearing later. And just a big hello to all the listeners. Thanks so much for supporting Planet Watch. It's great to have you guys carrying on without me. <laughs> and keep on having fun up there, or as much fun as you can under in, in all that smoke. And uh, good luck with that, and hopefully it all clears. And uh, I guess uh, I'm getting the signal here that before we bring Chris on, is it time to do our break? Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Rachel. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. I'm Matt Thompson, Santa Cruz resident and project manager for Day One Solar. I find Santa Cruz to be such a unique place. You have community-minded residents that really appreciate the beauty that surrounds us. But with that comes a responsibility to protect our natural resources for generations to come. At Day One Solar, we offer clean energy systems that will save you money while you help save our planet. Solar energy now. Day One Solar. Every exam room I've ever been in in my life has a sink and a faucet, but they rarely ever use it. Two million infections each year in hospitals in America alone. There are 90,000 deaths from those infections each year. There's a yearly figure. Not one doctor gets their license suspended. Nobody gets fined. It's just absolutely incredible. What would happen if North Korea and Iran were to send over a biological weapon and, and infect two million people in a large population center and kill 90,000? It'd be war. Don't miss Dead Doctors Don't Lie, the radio show, Monday through Friday at 12.06 on AM 1340 KOMY. Okay, welcome back. Planet Watch, and we're going to move right to our interview. Uh, uh, our guest, Chris Bly, uh, is an expert on both uh, wind power and solar power, and uh, in particular, the large-scale systems, you know, the big wind turbines and the big arrays of s solar modules. Um, and he, uh, well, let's see, how did I put it on what I emailed out this morning? Something about aerial visuals and invisible 
spectral signatures can reveal problems that need fixing in both wind and solar and agricultural fields. So I was kind of, that was code for the word drone. <laughs> I'm looking at the word drone right here. There's a big event here in Santa Cruz about drones uh, in October, early October of this year. Is it Santa? Yeah, there's one on October 5th, right, in Santa Cruz and also one in San Jose. But welcome, Chris, and uh, tell us about what you do. Uh, your company, Rope Partner First, and then the newer company, Inspect Tools, and any other companies, by the way, that you happen to have in your back pocket. Uh, right. Well, <laughs> thanks a lot, Joe, for the introduction to join you all. Um, so, yeah, got started back in 2000 with a uh, company called uh, Rope Partner. So I was an avid rock climber, uh, UC Santa Cruz biology student, and uh, through um, being outdoors and enjoying the outdoors, I, I met other climbers uh, that were traveling from the former East Germany. And uh, they happened to be over here climbing Yosemite and Joshua Tree and other places. So I got to know those guys better. Um, and what they did for work was uh, rappel down the sides of buildings and large structures for uh, inspection, maintenance, and repair. And uh, during that time, I was very familiar with wind turbines, but the wind turbines in uh, California were shorter. They were probably 150 feet. And so I, I, these guys told me that uh, there was larger wind turbines in Germany. And so I went to go visit them, and I was kind of blown away by the size. And, uh, blown, away. blown away, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, there you go, yeah. <laughs> and so um, uh, through that experience, I, I saw the challenge in maintaining these. You know, who, who is going to get up there, or what kind of cranes or methodologies for access to uh, inspect, maintain, and repair. So in 2001, I started a company called Rope Partner, and uh, hired climbers uh, that had skills and harnesses and ropes and confidence around that. And uh, I also was an early or the first one of the first investors in Pacific Edge Climbing Gym. So a lot of the stars aligned in an interesting way to have skilled workers, get them trained in industrial rope access, and then put them out in the field for uh, taking care of uh, large-scale wind turbines. Interesting. So uh, Rope Partner is still in santa cruz on the west side headquartered right yeah uh, that's correct but you uh, no longer um, did you sell off your interest in that? no i'm still involved there i'm on the board and uh part owner and so uh row partner um is on the west side that's correct and we have a training facility there and that's where our project managers sit um, but uh, the workers pretty much live all around the world, and then we have a job. They get called up and meet up in, you know, Texas or Thailand or wherever the, the work um, is needed for our customers. And they also go around occasionally on great big buildings and things, right, where they have to get to... I don't know, uh, fixing windows or parts of the structures? Or? Well, that's more rare, actually, Joe, yeah. is that we're more focused in uh, uh, wind energy, just that they're large structures and there's uh, particulars around um, inspection, maintenance, and repair. So the what we do most of our work on is actually the wind turbine blades themselves. So the wind turbine blades are made up of fiberglass, so they can be up to, each blade can be up to 50 meters long. And so um, they're out in the environment they're spinning around uh, very quickly. They look like they're moving slowly, but the tip uh, speed can be in excess of 180, 190 miles an hour. So uh, dust in the air can um, have an effect on the leading edge of, of the wind turbine blade, causing uh, forms of erosion. Um, also, it's obviously the tallest thing out in the environment. Uh, and so what happens is lightning can often strike uh, wind turbine blades. And so this could be catastrophic um, if you don't have a system for uh, ch uh, channeling that lightning down to the ground. And so there's actually uh, metal uh, uh, pucks uh, that are no a part of the lightning protection system that takes the lightning energy, channels it through the inside of the blade, and then you have to skip over the, the race and the ball bearings because they would actually be welded um, in, in do damage that way. So then you have to bring it all the way down so it's grounded uh, into the ground. And if that system isn't working, the, the blade could pretty much explode by a strong lightning strike. Hmm. And by the way, you used the term race there. I believe that has something to do with the center of rotation, the, 
the hub or the nacelle or right well well uh, you mentioned one of the components of wind turbines so maybe just uh, defining that might be helpful so you have a big foundation which a lot of us don't see but it's a, uh, on a larger wind turbine it could be the size of a house uh, underground to support all the force uh, that's being put on by the wind and then after that you have a tower that goes up from there and uh, you know they can be you know, upwards of uh, you know a common height is 80 meters and but that that height is getting higher and higher all the time so even in excess of a hundred meters um, and the reason for that you get better wind the higher you get it's more consistent and then um, what sits on top of the tower is the nacelle and that yaws around so changes the direction depending on where the wind is coming from and then uh, uh, the nacelle houses the the, uh, the gearbox and generator upstairs. And then attached to the main shaft are the big uh, wind turbine rotor blades, which are attached by a hub in the center. So um, but there... You, but you said the race. What, what is that? Well, oh, going to? back to the race. So a race is where uh, the bearing uh, meets the metal uh, part. So that is the place where uh, the rotation happens. And, and reduces friction. So if you're driving lightning through that point, wherever that's touching, uh, so much energy so quickly, it's almost like you're welding it uh, from a place that you don't want to have any friction uh, in place. So you have to jump over that. Um, and I understand there is sort of a movement now to new, even bigger, more powerful wind turbines that don't involve uh, gearboxes. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, yeah, of course. So this is, um, you know, size is everything in wind energy, really. The the larger turbines you can make, uh, you can take away much smaller wind turbines. So the, the wind turbines I, I was familiar with initially in California during the 70s and early 80s, uh, created maybe 150 megawatts, or, or not megawatts, but kilowatts. And then now one wind turbine can produce up to three or four megawatts. And so that's a lot more power uh, per turbine. That's, a, and that's so, a million watts, by the way. A megawatts is a million watts. A typical home uses energy at a, an average rate of a few kilowatts, a few thousand watts. So we're talking thousands of times that big for one wind turbine. Yeah. And so what a lot of people also don't know is this is a lot of manufacturing. It's a lot of jobs. And so um, uh, we turned over uh, just recently, and there's 100,000 people that are employed by the wind energy industry now in, uh, you know, manufacturing, installation, uh, service, operations and maintenance, all those parts. And a lot of the, the factories are in the Rust Belt regions. If you can imagine, these big towers need to be produced. Uh, the components, uh, different components, gearboxes and generators. And the, they're so large that it doesn't make sense to uh, put them on a ship and make them in China. Um, so they're made here in the United States, which is a, a really important uh, consideration. And you, did you say 100,000, meaning in this country? Yeah, in this country. Yeah. And I imagine it's an even bigger number elsewhere, partly because there's other countries, and in fact, the leading one for many, many years, maybe still, is Denmark. <laughs> they, they make most, or did make most of the world's big, good wind turbines. Uh, that's correct, yeah. And But that the numbers have changed around pretty dramatically recently. So China is the number one country now for wind turbine installations, and they, you know, rush past us very quickly because they have such a need and hunger for uh, electricity to drive their factories that, um, you know, both in wind and solar, they're very um, strong. Well, this kind of, this pattern kind of mirrors the other topic we can discuss today. We can go back and forth a little bit, but uh, in solar, China, I think, is now kind of the biggest, whereas before that, it was others, including us, who invented the stuff, you know, solar electric, photovoltaics, sunlight turning into electricity. And uh, so... Yeah, why don't we talk a little bit about your involvement, your newer involvement now with the solar industry. It's pretty fascinating stuff and a bit controversial because of those skyborne devices with which you do your looking down on stuff. And uh, yeah, so tell us, uh, summarize what you're doing and 
what you make of it all. Yeah, well, there's there might be a little cleaner segue from uh, wind uh, into uh, using what's now commonly known as drones uh, for doing uh, commercial uh, inspections. And so, um, as I mentioned before, the towers were so tall and the blades are so large uh, that putting a human up there to inspect it on ropes takes a lot of time. Um, so four years ago, I got introduced to the drone technologies, uh, and what we did um, was put high-resolution cameras on uh, these drones, flew them up uh, approximately five meters away from the wind turbine blade, and, and got many uh, pictures uh, of the uh, surface area of the blade. Then we uh, created a software program which housed those images um, so we could relate it to the site and then the specific turbine, the specific blade, and then the place on the blade where we would um, identify damage within that image. And so um, there was a, um, a need for that by our customers because they really, they thought they could just put the wind turbine, uh, turbines out there and not think about it. But they soon realized when they started having failures that you could have uh, prevented uh, some of those failures if you caught the problem sooner rather than later. And so um, that's uh, one segment that we worked on with drones initially. And then, as you mentioned, Joe, um, solar became the next. Um, so a lot of these big owners of wind turbines, they also are investing in solar. So I had a good network there. Um, and we, instead of putting just visual cameras on uh, drones, we also put infrared cameras. And so uh, for those of you that don't know infrared, um, we're really seen in the spectrum of heat. And so solar energy, it takes the, the energy from the sun and converts it into electricity. So if there's any problem there, it shows up in a heat signature. And so um, we uh, collect this information and then we uh, stitch the images together. So we come up with what's known as an ortho mosaic and then put those images onto a map, um, a GIS uh, map, so geographic information systems. And then we can uh, tell our customers uh, what, what modules have trouble or, or may, might uh, have hot cells in them, or maybe they don't even know a whole block of panels isn't even working. Um, so we can see that in the infrared spectrum. And so do you have to do that work? I think the answer is no. I may have asked you this before, but... Do you have to do that work at night so the infrared signature is not swamped by all the visible light that's predominant in the daytime? Or can you actually see uh, well in the infrared in the daytime uh, amidst all that visible light uh, from you know the sun and the ambient? Uh, yeah, well, the, the, the daytime is actually the time that we do these inspections. And so um, what the, 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 they're actually, if there's a problem, it shows up as being hotter because uh, what happens is, is that the heat energy is being offloaded by the module. So it's cooler than even the ground. And so, uh, or if there's a problem in, in one of the cells, um, it, it could be seen as whiter or hotter than the adjacent uh, cells or modules. Mm. And uh, in, in addition to using drones, we also use manned aircraft because some of the, the plants uh, or solar facilities can have upwards of uh, getting close to 2 million modules. And so when we first uh, started in this work, they were actually having people walk up and down the rows with solar uh, cameras, handheld solar or IR cameras, looking for problems. And so this was a much more efficient way to get there using a drone and even more efficient with a uh, manned aircraft. Hmm. So that's interesting because uh, actually a point that most people don't realize is that uh, solar panels, the, the correct term is actually solar modules, but anyway, uh, they get hot, you know, out there under that sun. And in fact, they don't like it hot. They perform best in, you know, like high, thin atmosphere, cold, clear conditions. But nevertheless, down in the desert, kind of lower altitude where a lot of these are being installed, it, they get hot. But what you're saying is despite the fact that there's all that heat coming off just from the sunlight baking them, there's even more heat, or at least a different pattern of heat, coming from the trouble spots, which uh, you yeah. can detect. Yeah, that's correct. And then other, we also uh, fly these missions also with a visual camera, too, so we could see things such as soiling and uh, compare those, uh, because we could look either in the infrared or visual spectrum. So are you... Um, 
kind of the only game in town on this or are there other companies doing the same thing and how many of the big solar you know giants are you kind of working with now well uh, of course we have competitors in uh, several different areas um you know the the main uh, part or deliverable to our clients is where the problem uh, is. And so um, we're not, uh, you know, necessarily selling the service. We also work with some companies that they perform the service and then we get the data and do the processing and analysis to deliver back to them. But um, IR inspections is a quick uh, relatively inexpensive and fast way to get that information. And then oftentimes you have to dig deeper. You would have to send somebody out to the site to see if they're, you know, how bad the problem is. And then we, we prioritize those problems so they can be more strategic in addressing them. You know, I realized something that all of us forgot. We usually say several times by now how you listeners out there can reach us. If you have any questions or comments for us and our guest, Chris Bly, please email us like now or very soon at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. That's radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. And am I seeing that something, nothing yet? Okay, well, well couldn't be quite that fast. But uh, so uh, let me ask you a couple things about drones. I mean, you know, at least around here, you know, people are always all concerned about the privacy issues and you got eyes in the sky. And one of my friends is actually one of the major solar guys around here. He was the head of one of the big companies. And uh, he told me lately, he said, I woke up this morning, there was a drone right above my backyard looking right down on me. I'm going to leave Santa Cruz. <laughs> I'm getting tired of this. Well, yeah, okay, there's the privacy issue. Uh, and then there's also, I'm wondering if you've ever, maybe you can tell us some stories here. I always like stories. Have people, I mean, I don't want to give people ideas, but sometimes I've thought if one of those things gets too close to me, I'm going to, you know, throw something up at it or throw a towel and see if I can lasso it or smother it and bring it down. I mean, do you have things like that happening or, uh, and what are the legal ramifications of such events? Right. Well, on the drone side, it's complicated. Um, there's, uh, you know, just for where we're at, we're, like you mentioned, out in the desert, Joe, is where a lot of these solar facilities are. So we're we're on the commercial side. We're not so much on uh, trying to get uh, video, anything like that, and uh, particularly not around um, people or houses. Um, the people uh, that are around when we operate are the uh, people maintaining the sites and things like that. Um, so that, that, you know, and, and to tell you the truth, I get annoyed too when I'm uh, out at the beach or someplace in nature and there's this, uh, buzzing drone because it's, uh, uh it, it's bothersome and I can totally understand that. So our focus is more on, um, doing industrial inspections. And so that could be out, uh, in agriculture fields. We, our office is down in La Selva beach. And so, um, we're, uh, looking at inspecting structures strawberry fields also, as well as, um, you know, Brussels sprouts and things like that. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. The uh, I actually heard a little clip uh, of you being interviewed on this station a few weeks ago uh, about uh, your agricultural applications. And, you know, for really big fields of crops, I suppose you would use regular old airplanes to inspect. But uh, for kind of medium to small size uh well, not small, but medium size. You know, too big for somebody to just go walking around. Uh, drones could could work quite well. Uh, are there quite a number of things you can find and you know, plants and crops, uh, and actually notify the the growers, the farmers, uh, that they've got a problem or how things are looking. Sure. Um, and what, what plays into that a lot is resolution. Um, so uh, we can uh, fly lower and slower with powerful cameras and get uh, all the way down to sub-millimeter resolution, or you can fly higher and have a, a, a bigger perspective. 
and get uh, uh, meter resolutions. So it, it really comes down to what you want to see uh, at the end of the day. Um, and so do you, do you need to count seeds on strawberries or that that's not necessary for other applications? So um, it, it's a learning process. And so uh, in addition to visual imagery, like we're using IR and solar, uh, there's also uh, hyperspectral uh, sensors, so it sees a much broader spectrum. Uh, but this is a lot of data. Um, and then there's tools in which uh, there's if it's a, a certain disease that you're looking for, you don't have to capture all those different uh, spectrums. You can zero in on specific ones. And so there, there, there's a lot of fine-tuning, as you could probably guess, in that you're not going to have a sledgehammer to try to um, hang a picture frame. And I think that's a, you know, a good analogy for a lot of what the work that we do, um, what's, what's good enough. And I guess uh, at the heart of what you're doing on both wind and sun is uh, evolution of uh, better drones and, and uh, better cameras and sensors on those cameras. But uh, just to close out here before we get into our so-called oddball stuff part of the show, uh, tell us what you think for the future of both wind and solar. Just in a nutshell, how do you see things moving? Well, uh, uh, renewable energy in the United States uh, just surpasses the number one uh, uh, wind energy, actually, is the number one renewable energy in the United States right now. And so it's surpassed uh, hydropower. And uh, I, I see a lot of uh, potential for the future for manufacturing more wind turbines in this country. But solar, even though the module might be um, produced in another country, we still have to install them here. You need to maintain them here. And so there's a lot of jobs related to this. You know, it's not something that you can outsource. So um, I see it as a really positive thing that we can um, manufacture them here, install them here, maintain them and uh, in the end of the day we're using the energy ourselves and so it's a uh, creates a nice uh, circle yeah well that's uh, that is great and you're kind of right in the thick of uh, the progress uh, see I'm getting a hand signal here from Tommy yeah um, I have a question and we also got a kind of comment slash question from a listener Really quick, my question is, how often do wind turbines need to be repaired? Like, is there, like, an average amount of time they last before the, you need to send somebody up there or a drone or something? Well, the, they, um, the, the lifespan typically is 20 years for a wind turbine, yeah. and it's about a million dollars a megawatt. So you, you have, on a, a you know, three-megawatt wind turbine, there's a $3 million investment. And so... Um, you want to maintain them over time. You don't want right. to wait until it breaks and then have to deal with it then. And uh, it, it really depends on, on the manufacturer, the environment where it's located. Um, one thing uh, we learned, uh, if it's a really salty environment, let's say close to the coast, uh, salt is very aggressive for leading edge erosion. Right. And so, um, and uh, uh, other uh, corrosions like on the tower and things like that. So there's, it's, it's really, it's a, it's a tough question. It, it's, it's not created equal. Yeah. Okay. It just, it's the type of turbine and it's in the environment that it's in. Uh, can, uh, you know, determine how often you want to look at them. So what is the best repair for that edge to be, I don't know, reshaped or... Well, it's, it's since, you know, we're here in Surf City, it's a, it's a fiberglass repair. Okay. And so it's a series of grinding down, um, removing a certain amount of material, building it back up, um, you know, making sure that leading edge is, is uniform uh, because that's really where the lift begins. Yeah. If there's any consistency there, it can cause drag. And so that it's an airfoil uh, for the most part, the, you know, high pressure, low pressure, and that's really what's making electricity for you. Cool. Thank you. Say, folks, uh, we're down to the last, like, okay, five we also minutes. Have one, one comment from a listener. Please comment on how many raptors uh, are killed and maimed by windmills. Yeah, great question. Um, so... It, you know, I, I don't know if everybody knows that the Audubon Society promotes wind energy. Uh, there's a feeling that, you know, we, we have to uh, become uh, more uh, renewable-based rather than using coal or other uh, ways of burning things. And so uh, Audubon Society is, is big promoters. 
Uh, but uh, bird mortality is a very big um, uh, challenge for the wind energy industry right now. And, uh, and there's uh, ongoing studies going on. And even, you know, going back to the drone side of it, you know, I observe uh, birds interacting all the time, you know. And I, I think there could even be a place for drones to even partake in shooing away birds or keeping those out of the danger zone. And that's so it's a, it's yeah. a very hot topic is, you know, the, the, that's what I like about the wind energy industry. They're really embracing these challenges and want to um, mitigate them as much as possible. But, um, you know, having an exact number, I, I don't have an exact number. I, I, I sadly well, see a lot of roadkill of raptors when I drive around. So, and buildings and uh, guy wires of towers are, yeah. are killers of birds too. So uh, it's a very common question that I get is uh, and, directed at wind energy. And I will say thank you for, to that listener for bringing it up. You took the words right out of my mouth. I was just about as we were signing off from this segment to say we'll have another like whole show on that very topic of the bird, you know, issue with wind because it's big and it's important. But as Chris said, it's maybe not as bad as you think. And as I always say, hey, look, folks, nothing is perfect. You always have to ask compared to what? You know, what else out there is even way worse? But yeah, so we'll get you more information on that. Uh, let's see. <laughs> Uh, we got. I think we still have uh, Eugene on the line. Can we bring him in? He's uh, the guy from uh, Ohio, Columbus, Ohio, who's carrying our show on the Green Radio Network. Uh, he he wanted to just say something. It's got to be really quick, Eugene, because we're running out of time here. But are you there? Yeah, Joe. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Joe. Okay. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. Quick comment on the eclipse coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, one of the most awesome phenomena is to be able to see the shadow wall racing away from your location at 1500 miles an hour at the moment that the that the uh, total eclipse ends so um at that moment when you when you're looking at the sun with your bare eyes looking at the uh the stars in the sky and the corona of the sun um when the the first bead of brilliance appears ending the the totality no, look the to the ring. east that, that bead yeah. is the, known as the diamond ring. And when that okay, appears, you don't want to look at the ring. sun anymore. But then if you look down, you can see the shadow racing away at like maybe more even than 2,000 miles an hour. And you can also see it coming at you right at the beginning of the eclipse. But you're usually but then looking you're at all kinds of other things. you're going to want to look at the sun. Yeah, there's too many things to look at at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. But at the end, look, look to the east and, and look up in the sky a bit. You'll see it just racing through the atmosphere. Uh, toward the east at about 1,500 yeah. miles an okay. hour. Okay. Well, thanks, Eugene. And I'm going to segue from that into another thing I wanted to talk about, which also dovetails nicely with wind. Namely, this week in Santa Cruz, I don't know how many of you out there experienced it. I was lucky to catch some of it. This thing called the Fognado. The Fognado is this gigantic, whirling, monstrous, hulking tower of rotating fog that came roaring in around natural bridges. I happened to be on the front deck of my house talking to somebody who was coming back to Santa Cruz from over the hill where it was 100 degrees at Fahrenheit in the Silicon Valley, and it suddenly the temperature dropped like 15 degrees or 20 degrees in half a minute. And this huge thing covered the sun, and uh, then it just blew over, and then, and then it got hot again. And you can actually... Look at videos of this. Look, look up Fognado. So we're talking about the wall of shadow leaving the eclipse, and this was a wall of wind and fog coming in in Santa Cruz and kind of some weird weather. Well, hey, we got a little bit more here. One thing I've been requested to announce to make sure everybody knows is, look, if you're going to be looking at this eclipse, whether you're where it's partial or, you know, during the partial phase when you're where it's going to be total, take care of your eyes. And there's a whole lot of bogus so-called eclipse glasses out there which are being sold but there are certain companies that are reliable for protecting your eyes and uh, earthsky.org is a good source they were out for a while but now they have them again earthsky.org and more later uh, i hear the music coming on gustav holst's the planets but uh, there's a partial lunar eclipse happening uh, tomorrow night, but it, it's over on the other side of the world, so uh, we can't see it. But uh, it'll be about 11 a.m. our time tomorrow, <laughs> August 7th. You can just sort of rest in the knowledge that 
the moon is being partially covered for folks on the other half of the world. So, uh, hey, thanks so much to our guests, Chris, and our interns, Caroline, Tommy, and Cade, and all of you listeners out there for your interest in important and fun things and interesting things. So uh, until next time, this is Joe Jordan, and thanks also to Rachel for calling in from the far north, and uh, we'll see you another. We'll be talking to you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye.